Are you happy? Magic Seeds takes a good look at everyday challenges and gives solid advice on how to navigate through them, be it relationships, career, parenting, or just not feeling happy inside. I'm Dr. Adam Grise. And I'm Laura Grise. Please join us weekly to discuss everyday situations that seem to be getting in the way of feeling happy and peaceful. We'll provide magic seeds and a reliable roadmap for you to follow to stay on a healthy path for your life. Welcome back to Magic Seeds. We have a cool topic today. Laura, why don't you introduce it for us? It's a very cool and different topic today. We're talking about psychedelics and the use of psychedelics. And first, I have to say that I lost my voice yesterday, so I might not be heard today. So if we feel like it's not good enough, I'm going to just turn to you, Adam, okay? (laughs) Yeah. I'm always nudging you behind the scenes. Speak louder. Speak up. Speak into the mic. And now I can't even. Okay. So what we want to do today is almost alchemize the perspective of psychedelics and give a history of them and also other uses. When somebody hears about a psychedelic, most people just turn their backs. They don't want to hear about it or it's very taboo, but they've actually been used for centuries in sacred ceremonies to connect with higher spirits and for healing and for growth. And actually, we can date it all the way back to seven to 9,000 years ago. And there is a mural in Algeria that depicts mushroom medicine man, shaman. I mean, that's a long time ago. It's a long time. Yeah. But it's natural stuff. And it's been here. It's natural. Right. So we are talking today about how psychedelics are used for post-traumatic memories. They'll surface and or the, the psychedelics allow them to surface where otherwise people would just bury their emotions forever. But the psychedelics allow them to surface and it allows them to actually go through the process and actually move forward. And psychedelics have been used to treat depression and anxiety and chronic mental disorders. And I think just like anything like food or exercise, money, technology, sex, drugs, work, we develop addictions and then we abuse them. And psychedelics don't necessarily have to be that redheaded stepchild where they're illegal and we don't talk about it. They're even scared to talk about them. And if abused, they're like any other aforementioned But if guided properly with professionals or shamans or guides, they can actually be extremely healing remedies. There's, um, you've been talking about this, it makes me think of in Chinese medicine, I do a lot of Chinese herbs, and there's the Materia Medica of hundreds of these herbs. And as you learn about them, a lot of them have these toxic nature to them. It's just said after thousands of years of learning how to use these herbs, they're like, here's what you got to do for this herb. You only use it in these situations. You Mm -hmm. can only use it for this much time. Here's what you use it with. And it's just so specific. Remember when ephedra came out and everyone was using it for weight loss and then people are having heart attack. Then all of a sudden in the Chinese medical field, you couldn't get ephedra anymore. FDA was like, this is a terrible substance. We shouldn't be using it. Whereas you look up how to use the herb, you would never, ever use it for long term. It's used for like asthma and stuff like that. So misappropriation becomes what creates this level of the stigma. Abuse. Abuse. We abuse so many different things. We abuse food. (laughs) We abuse food and we haven't made it illegal. Alcohol. Right. Everything. Everything. We've made it illegal and we've pushed it to the side. We're scared to talk about it. There are certain substances, they hold a higher degree of... Value or... No, of like just their effect. Their effect is so much more intense on the system. And you have to be more careful when using it. And a lot of times when these substances come above surface, the agency's in charge. Like, well, you know what? This is just too much. We just need to knock this down. If it's in the right hands, it'll be okay. We're just here to shed a little positive light on all the different things that have actually been going on. And while it's made illegal, people have kind of gone around that because they realize how effective they can actually be. So people have almost secretly been going through studies and working with the psychedelics because they're helping people. 
and they're in the right hands. They're not just thrown out in the street and here, take the psychedelics. This is how it can help you medicinally. But they're given in the right hands of professionals and shamans, guides. They're really, really helping people and helping them personally grow and heal from trauma. We'll get to our guest in a second. Due to the fact that when there are controlled studies, when we can actually be curious to these substances and learn them instead of just see the potential for harm, a lot opens up. And you and I have been interested in this and yes. and we've dabbled in it. You've mentioned plant medicine yes. and we've explored it ourselves for its medicinal for properties in a very sacred manner. And there's a lot of interest out there. A lot of interest. People ask us all the time. But so, they're scared to ask, Adam, and they ask behind closed doors. And that's exactly why we're doing this episode today. So with us here today is Dr. Gary Harmon. He's an epidemiologist with over 22 years of experience in public health. He holds a doctoral degree from the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. His research and work has been in the areas of substance use disorder and mental health treatments, early child and developmental delays, as well as medication access for low-income populations. And he's here because he has an active interest in research, new and novel mental health treatments. And beyond all that, he happens to be a long, long time friend, someone that I met in college and continues to be one of my best friends. So it's been cool to have someone with your knowledge and expertise side by side with me for all these years. So ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hey, hello. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on to my favorite people here known you all for a long time. So this is very cool to come on and be able to talk a little bit about this subject with you guys. We've obviously had many conversations. Yes. Frisbee golf course. <laughs> we talk about this kind of stuff all the time, and but we've never sat down in a formal setting to kind of really dive in here. I know as a doctor of Chinese medicine, it's been really interesting having you as a friend who you are steeped in Western medicine. Oh, yeah. Well, when I'm talking to Gary, I always leave him like, he doesn't think what I do is real. (laughs) Well, it's more about, I think the thing I always say to you is, hey, could you send me the studies? That's always my response. Uh, And that's not always the easiest thing because Western medicine studies things different than Eastern medicine. So I know that's not always a parallel, but for me, that's always going to be my first inclination as an epidemiologist. Yeah. But like, that's like with your dad, Laura. I was just going to say, it's Pete Karch. Pete Karch. Yes. It's like, if it doesn't fit within the Newtonian physics paradigm of understanding science, it then just gets discounted, dismissed. And that's obviously not the be-all, end-all right. model. But I think there's always a happy medium, right? There's a balance that everything's about. So I think that's where you've helped open my eyes because I've been an epidemiologist for almost 25 years now. So being steeped so much in what I've done and the research I've done and the work I've done, it keeps me sort of focused on the way that I've been taught and the way that I sort of continue to sort of do this work. So you've sort of opened my mind to say, hey, not everything is so linear. Not everything is so separated. We do that a lot. That's what Western medicine is, right? We take the body and we say it's the head, it's the reductionist arm. Yeah, exactly. And so what you sort of helped me say, learn is much more about the larger picture. And obviously, obviously, as epidemiologists in general learn that, they realize that everything's related. And that's one of the things that I think we're going to talk about today is how the relief of many different symptoms for folks can be relieved just through the use of certain medications or, in this case, natural occurring substances that can really change someone's life path. And I think the big thing here is that it doesn't just change their brain. It changes a lot of the other things in their life, too, because by changing the brain, I mean, there's pain that people are in that they're no longer in because of some of these substances. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really interesting to sort of look at both ends of it. And so hopefully today I can come here and give you some of the Western medicine work that's been done around hallucinogenics and, and psychedelics in general. But I think I'd love to hear more about what you all think, too. And that's Mm -hmm. where I'm here also, not just to sort of share my knowledge, but also to learn. The parallel, open focus, just looking at Chinese medicine and picking the head up. There's just opening the possibility of just curiosity to the unexplained. We live in a world of many, many unexplained things. And that's right here with psychedelics, too. 
as ancient cultures might have had a shaman, right? And we've been in medicine circles led by a shaman, mm-hmm. very sacred ritualistic ceremonies. And that's the way that these cultures have learned to have some sort of control or like making sure they're doing it appropriately, knowing mm-hmm. how to use the medicine and create a safe container for it. But that safe container isn't going to cut it for Western medicine. They need to see numbers. They need to see exactly what can do it. They're not going to say, oh, a shaman is going to be chanting. Oh, they're going to be playing some instruments. They need to see some letters behind names. But the fact is, it's been passed down from generation (laughs) to generation. In the realm of science, experiential, right? What's the word for that? If you have research- Degrees. When you've actually performed actions or experiments- Credibility. And there's something to that, like instead of it being a double blind study, if you've done a hundred treatments and it's all worked out a certain way, yeah, maybe you don't have an actual double blind study to go to. That's in this different types of studies. If you're not, it's not set up with like a research structure. It's called a case study generally. So it could be 10 case studies or a hundred case studies, whatever it might be. Right. And that's where we always start with epidemiology is the case study is what have we seen happen in practice? Because that's where you always start. And then you say, oh, well, now we saw this in practice. What happens when we do it on a larger scale? What's happened when we do it? We control it. But actually, one of the things that what you just said that I kind of wanted to jump in, and, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but you mentioned how sort of the use of in non-Western cultures, sort of now that we're bringing, as we're going to talk about today, the research around some of these psychedelics is one of the things that we're going to talk about is Johns Hopkins recently did a study to try to work with folks on depression. And mm. I believe I have to, let's see, I just want to double check. They did, I want to make sure psilocybin they used. And what they found is really great results. But one of the things that they did when they gave the folks it, they had a playlist. And so the playlist itself is what they gave them to listen to while they were using the substance. And so if you think about that, just when you just said that right away, like rituals, music, so maybe some of these things are being brought over a little bit, some Mm. recognition that this is important. Is that just like a fringe component of it that's not being measured, right? Because there's so much to that, like when people are even measuring acupuncture and Western medicine wants to make it where it's like, oh, this point, if you do it, it should be the same every time, but it's different. Like as Mm -hmm. a practitioner, I could be going into the same point on six different people and be needling that point differently. There's so much nuance, so many variables. And yeah, I mean, Laura, we've been in circle like Mm -hmm. that. The music and just the whole experience It brings you to a different place than just doing it in, say, isolation. If the shaman is different and the leaders are different, it makes a whole different experience. Or there are so many different variables. The headspace that you go into the ceremony makes it a completely different experience. It's very true. I mean, just Mm -hmm. personal experience from younger, where you use certain substances will impact the kind of experience you have. Yes. In the middle of a nature preserve in upstate New York is going to be different than in a room in a doctor's office. It's just going to be. I mean, not saying one's worse, better than the other. They're just going to be different experiences. Exactly. Well, very different. We in college and using recreationally, you know, psilocybin, and we're doing it completely just to have an experience, right? And we're in the nature preserve or we're in a shopping cart, pushing each other down a street, that's very different than the way it's being used clinically where you are staying still, right? If it's outside, maybe you're lying down, maybe you're sitting up for something like ayahuasca, but it's being led. It's very much intentional. And that's a big difference. I think that's one of the big things that what you mentioned is why it became illegal so fast is because when it was first used in the 1940s, it was a Swiss chemist who actually found LSD and he conducted some trials, found it worked really well. And then they started using it as a psychomimetic. I don't know. Do you all know that word? Nope. Okay. Explain it to us yeah. and the listeners. Psychomimetic is related to or denoting drugs which are capable of producing an effect on the mind similar to a psychotic state. So something that can just produce a psychotic state. And so they found out LSD does this. And then they began to do some trials, began to look at it and see sort of what would happen. And very quickly, under therapeutic use with psychologists and mostly psychiatrists, it started to be used quite widely in the 1940s and 1950s to treat patients. So I don't know if people know that, but that was actually pretty regular use of it. What, what kinds of patients for so what? 
particularly around psychotherapy. And what they really did is they looked at how effective it was as getting people to sort of shift their thinking. So early on, I think one of the things is it was just being used kind of like, hey, we're going to give you this substance. You're going to lay down. You're going to talk about your childhood things like that. But eventually people wanted to start doing some studies to say, what is about this? In the 1960s, they started to study a little bit more about why was it working? What was it happening? So they did a Harvard researcher named Walter Ponky. He conducted a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So you mentioned double-blind placebo-controlled. It just basically means two groups. Nobody knows what they're getting. Somebody's getting the substance. Somebody's getting some sort of sugar pill, whatever it might be, placebo. He did it on uh, 20 theology students. So he gave half of them psilocybin, so they were testing psilocybin, and half got placebo. And then they all attended a Good Friday Mass and were asked to later describe their experiences. And the results were pretty striking. Unsurprisingly, nine out of the 10 in the experimental group believed they'd experienced a genuine spiritual encounter while Mm -hmm. they were there. They found God. Exactly. (laughs) That's basically the way to say it. Yeah. And compared to just one of the control group. So person- In the portal. Yeah. That was your mom, by the way. Probably. The control group. The one. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been repeated, they said. And it's basically since, and it's very similar results. I want to hear something really cool about this. They followed up on those folks decades later. So not years, or decades later. And they considered all of the ones, not the nine of the 10 people, considered mm-hmm. their experience to have had generally- mystical elements and to have made a uniquely valuable contribution to their spiritual lives. I personally, I was in a circle and at the end you go through and you talk about your experience. And there there was this one guest there who spoke about how important it was to connect with the spirits. And I had never looked at it that way. I'd only thought about connecting with one spirit. And in particular, I was doing ayahuasca And so you call in Mother Ayahuasca, but he had talked about calling in many different spirits and I never looked at it that way. So then when I did another ceremony later, I decided to do that and it was so much more powerful. I felt like everybody was on my side. Everybody was supporting me. And I mean, I get it. Right. Mm. I'll tell you one thing that I feel on the other side of things, because you have these profound experiences, right? Yeah. I think the integration part is huge because you get blown wide open and you're seeing things that the firewall of your mind would never even allow to come in type of thing. But it's not always at face value, right? It's so easy. I remember doing it once and I'm in the jungle of Peru and I'm thinking, oh my God, there's this X that I had. And I'm like, oh, oh, she's the one for me. And I mean, I'm journaling about it. And that was it. And I come back home and I'm like, I make a plan to go see her. <laughs> like, that's it. I already know it. We're supposed to be together for the rest of eternity. And it's so easy to externalize that experience. But if you sit with it, it was really more about I was ready to commit. I was ready to be vulnerable. She just happened to be who came up in my journey. Right. And to that point of it's not just let me do this to have really cool visuals and to see really cool things. It's when you're done. There's people that do this medicine regularly. Yes. And a lot of times I'm like, are you even giving enough time? Like there's so many nutrients you get. It takes me months and months and months to incorporate and process that and really let it sink in and then practice living in whatever I found. But I think a lot of times it's misused like that. Right. 100%. All I was going to do is just to kind of go back a little bit and just maybe let's talk a little bit about the definitions of psychedelic drugs. Yes. Just to sort of say we're talking about right. here. What are we even we're, talking about? We're using a lot of terms interchangeably <laughs> here. And that's actually not terrible to do because in general, I mean, this is a little research I did for the show. There's ways that people can classify drugs. And basically the classical psychedelics sounds like classical music. The classical psychedelics include LSD, mescaline, psilocybin. And DMT is what is in ayahuasca. So that is the main psychedelic drug. And then there's another group of chemicals that share many of the same properties of these drugs, but are not strictly speaking psychedelics. They're called enactogens and empathogens. And the best known of this drug is called, I'm not going to say it, it's MDMA. So I'm not going to try to say the long name. It's actually, I think it's 23 letters long or something like that. And I tried reading it very slowly so many times and it doesn't work for me. Yeah, It it ends in (laughs) phetamine. So it's got that stuff in it. And there are other drugs in this group, mostly based around the structure of, I'm going to say this wrong, of course, phenothalamine. 
It refers to a class of substances with documented psychoactive and stimulant effects and includes amphetamines, methamphetamine, MDMA. And so basically, the group of chemicals is called disassociative anesthetics. And those are things such as ketamine, which obviously, oh, yeah. We, yeah, and venecyclidine. So ketamine is gaining massive popularity in broad use right now. Can I share a story about that? Actually, Massive. Yeah. So since I've mentioned that I was going on this podcast, I've been talking to a lot of people about this, trying to gather experiences and stories. And I was talking to a friend. And once I mentioned this, I had no idea about this, but they have actually been working with doctors here in North Carolina with ketamine and they've been doing infusions and their reported uh, feedback and the reported results are, I mean, unbelievable. I mean, we're talking about someone who went through a really bad physical accident. It's going through so obviously really tough times after that. Since they started, they're back swimming, they're back full activity again. I mean, they've said it's been life-changing for them. So just interesting that you mentioned ketamine because I was surprised to hear that this is being used here in treatment in there North are Carolina. Ketamine clinics popping up everywhere in the United States. Everywhere. And it's effective. Would a Western-minded scientist doctor just say, well, what you're doing is you're frying the brain and you're superloading chemical release. And so maybe you're getting a reset. So maybe you kind of like fry the mind. And then the way that we hold emotion and experiences in our viscera and our muscles, that it's just giving that reset and all the rest is just a show. Well, I think one of the things as an epidemiologist or a researcher, when we find an association, we say, hey, this is associated with that. We want to know the why. So the biological mechanism is really important here because you don't want to just say, hey, here's a drug, you take it, and these good things happen. Sure, but why? But so that why is my whole kind of point where I get stuck with Western medicine because their why goes to the reductionist place where an Eastern would say the why is going to be more global. Let's talk a little bit about that because I think one of the things that when I was doing some research around the biological mechanisms, the most interesting thing I found out is they don't know as much as you think they would know at this point. I do want to mention for 40 years, there was no research in this. It was made illegal. LSD was made illegal in the 1960s. MDMA, when it came out shortly after that. So basically all these drugs have been illegal for a long time. So no research has been done. So just now in the last maybe five to eight years, they're beginning to do the research on the epidemiological side, but they're also doing the research on the biological side to say, why does this work? And so instead of why, how is okay. this happening in the body, in the realm of matter, what is exactly going on? Okay. I'll accept that. Sure. So then let's talk about the how that they're seeing. So what they're doing is they're giving these patients who are volunteers, obviously, different types of psychedelics under fMRI, so functional MRIs. And functional MRI, the way it's done is they're able to see really clearly the functioning of the brain and the firing mm-hmm. of the brain. And one of the things that they've consistently seen through this work is that the brain fires differently under these substances. Absolutely. So generally, this whole thing, you only use a third of your brain. That's not true. I mean, you use your brain, but you cannot use all of your brain at the same time. Use the parts that you dream about at night when during the day. If that happened to you, you'd have some pretty interesting things. Well, that's what happens to you when you're on psychedelics, is you're accessing parts of your brain at the same time that don't normally fire at the same time. So if you think about how we compartmentalize things in Western medicine, if you're treating someone's depression, oh, well, this is caused by maybe this trauma over here or something that happened over here. And what about these things? What people often describe is psychedelics in the brain. By making everything fire at the same time, you're not compartmentalizing the trauma. You're actually making these threads come together. And so maybe that's more the how. And so there's still, again, this is just really early research. I could tell you some of it's a result of partial agonism on the 5-HT2A receptors. That's not going to mean anything to you. But what it's doing is firing things that's not normally firing. So it's so cool. I'm fascinated by Western medicine. Mm-hmm. I love Western medicine. Sure. I'm not like one of these Eastern, like, you have to do everything naturally. Like, it's amazing if you have everything on a spectrum and just know when and how to utilize, the more the merrier. Just know how to use a substance or how to use a medicine. The question I would have then is right before you die and you maybe see the light, someone's like, well, they've actually found the place in the brain that that triggers something with the optic nerve and blah, blah, blah. And so like, see, it's nothing. But is that just happening in the brain as a result of an experience or is the brain producing the experience? Right. 
That's the question. I mean, and I think it's funny, you get to ideas of cognition here. And I think totally have some of my friends who are psychoanalysts on this, they would love to get deep into you about this and the whole idea of sort of cognition and memory and all these things you're talking about, because I think they would have some really good explanations for that. I don't, I'm not a brain person, so I can't go much deeper than that, but I think it's fascinating myself. And, And to think that there's parts of our brain that we can't use at the same time. It's kind of a weird thing to even think about that. Like you would almost need a substance to be able to break down the barriers. That's like Limitless. You ever see Limitless? The Bradley Mm. Cooper movie where he takes some drug and it opens him up where he could like use 100% of his brain type of thing. And he's just- superpowers. He could see everything happening before it's happening. It's not very balanced. (laughs) Right. And that's why, like you said, controlled, Mm short-term- That's what these experiences are. You're not walking around on psilocybin full dosed for 10 days. You might be microdosing, which I do want to talk about a little bit with you all. Mm -hmm. Because that's something that's very new also and very big. But I'm going to tell you just interesting stuff and you're going to like shake your head. From Western medicine's point of view, there's just nothing on it so far. I mean, it's like they basically done studies where they gave people microdoses and they gave people placebos. Then everybody's reporting things are fantastic. So that's the other thing with Western medicine. We're always wanting to compare with a placebo and see- But placebo is a real medically- The effect is still real. If someone's happier- Right. So if you're talking about microdosing, we're talking about more subtle things. I mean, the mind as powerful as anything. So when you're talking about microdosing, you're talking about small things. Yeah, of course you could do that placebo wise. You just have to buy into something. You have to fully give into it. Once you give into it, the mind can produce amazing things let alone when we're talking about slight changes. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay. I just took it to a little bit of the biological mechanisms because I think that's where people always ask about is, well, why does this work? And also, there's a big component here because we're talking about depression, PTSD. And a lot of the research I've seen to this point, to the measure of using it effectively and judiciously, where there are people that have history and even just family history of dissociative disorders, bipolar, schizophrenia, where they're like, you shouldn't be using it. Right. Can you talk about the research on that a little bit? I don't have a ton on that, but I do want to say that is generally the case with individuals who have sort of severe mental illness. Their brain chemistry is different than, as you can imagine, than if you want to say typical brain. So the effects of these types of substances on the brain of someone who has severe mental illness, such as schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, it can be quite severe. Someone's already experiencing hallucinations, they're already experiencing some sort of voices, then you give them a substance that can maybe enhance that. Right. So yeah, so there is definitely, you know, a lot of research. And that's why I think the first reaction always is let's ban Let's make this illegal. Are you saying that it's not effective for them? It's dangerous. And I think that's the problem is they haven't done enough research because the little bit they've done has shown a lot of adverse events. But it's too unstable. Right. I get it. But if the dosages were taken down and the research was taken long term, what would that do? Do we have the patience? Do we have the energy? Do we have the drive to see what this can do for these extreme cases? Right. I'm sure, obviously, if, they've, if they're already saying this, they've been exploring it. And I can't imagine that's done, that exploration, that research. It's actually just starting. Right? I mean, that's really the best way to say it. So when you said that, that's the nuts. first thing I thought is that that probably hasn't even been largely tested yet. And you and know I what think... I bet? I bet it is being tested. It's just underground. Of Everything yes. is underground. It's exactly. It's well, that's what that's psychiatrists were doing that in the 50s and 60s. And they said even after it went illegal, and they were still using it. And that's because... what people are doing with ketamine and right. with MDMA and all has to be this underground world. (laughs) Right now, you can't really talk about it as like a doctor can't, You like maybe some doctors, but not all doctors are taught in medical school to when someone's failed their PTSD treatments, they've gone through medication, Western medicine, all that kind of stuff. Why not as a doctor, would you say, hey, maybe try this? I mean, the curiosity. Because the typical medicines, they close down the signals. They close down the synopsis, right? What do you mean? If you have depression, anxiety. Not they do anything. They affect, they take over. So like an SSRI is allowing more serotonin, right? So they're not, it's not everything closing down. People are severely lethargic when they have chronic mental disorders. I mean, they vegetize them, the, the medicines oh, vegetize Oh, right. Well, them. they try to stabilize. So they try to make things be less, have less variance 
in the manifestation so it becomes more stable and they're fine with shutting down other areas in order to create some stability. So obviously it's very scary to open up those channels instead of shutting down, open up those channels and to stick with it long term. That's a lot of the work that you and I do with people, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and we're not working with psychedelics with people. We'd love to. Well, because think (laughs) about it. We work with people and we have to work within the limits of what their mind is going to allow. So you're slowly trying to challenge those mental constructs to allow for more of that emotional body, more of that spiritual body to come through. But if we could have those boosters... Right. If you had access, if you could bypass some of the firewalls, that would be amazing. But to the point, that's where we're coming from is to say, hey, we want to create more of a connection, an internal connection. And that's where this is all going. And hold your hand. That's, that's the thing. Your hand be held. And you know, Western science right now and the medical system, they're trying to be the hand holder. A lot of times from my point of view, the way they hold the hand is kind of limiting a little bit too much for what we're really trying to attain. And I think that's always the first step. And if you think about a pendulum, right? The pendulum for so long was, you can't even look at this at all. And so slowly it's starting to move the other way where, okay, well, we'll look at this, but we're going to really under controlled circumstances. Mm -hmm. And then once we see success there, maybe we're going to move it to a little. So the pendulum, I think, will begin to go the other way eventually, but it has to go slowly because remember, Nancy Reagan, don't do drugs. The dare, like we're all taught, right. like so necessarily a bad thing for little kids to know that you shouldn't be doing heroin. That's a good thing to know that. Right? I mean, I want my kids. To I know teach that, my kids you know? that daily, right? Exactly. <laughs> we, we always are hopeful that I uh, hear our messages. But I think the idea being that when you demonize everything, right, then there's no room for that to be helpful. I mean, right. I don't want to get to the whole medical marijuana argument right now, but there's obviously a drug that's been demonized for so long that obviously has very clear medicinal use. So I think it's the same thing here. You're going to have to have a little time where it's going to slowly start getting studied, slowly into what populations will get studied and then where it gets Can done. you trust the general population to use things appropriately? No. No. That's where it comes down to. I mean, alcohol is not used appropriately. Marijuana, not used appropriately. I can't believe right. I have people that I know that are interested in like ayahuasca. I'm like, yeah, there's this Facebook ad that came up and there's this dude in Colorado. <laughs> and right. I, you know, you think this is good to do? I'm like, I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. And right. I'm not even saying that it's bad or whatever it is, but how can you trust this stuff? This should be at the very least scientifically researched and also very at the very least done in a way that has the experience that the case studies where you're going to a shaman uh, to a village somewhere that they've been doing this for centuries and passed down i'm like okay even if i don't know this has been done enough times that maybe i feel like they're doing it the right way and i have firsthand experience firsthand accounts it is like the wild west out there and people once they get it they want to just run they, they just want to run from stuff yeah and also it's like anything else now we have access to it ooh let's mm-hmm. all go and grab it and we're going to have people go in emergency rooms showing up because listen there's bad trips i mean uh-huh. i've seen it with my I've, own two eyes I've, or I've someone had, had them okay well there <laughs> you go and it's not fun right no, no. It, it's torture it's torture but yeah. i'll say that when i talk to my clients i don't even care if it's alcohol but mostly marijuana. Well, anything, I wouldn't do it with a cigarette, but just alcohol, marijuana. I know I'm not thinking anything else right now, but I always tell them to use it medicinally, not recreationally. Right. If I can help lead them down that path, I will. But I mean, we've all done our recreational abuse with marijuana, drugs, alcohol, And now just being older and using it medicinally, it's really powerful. It's so powerful. And I don't consider myself a leader or a guide, but I know which direction to go to for myself. I don't expect other people to do it, but it really is very effective when you don't sit there and recklessly abandon, just use it. When you're not trying to numb or distract, sure, that's the difference. And again, I'll say, we do, do it with food. food. We yeah. numb use ourselves with food. Use it as a medicine. Food. Don't use it right. as an emotional. Exactly. We can't expect the masses to use anything. So how do we regulate that? How, how does do that, we regulate realistically it? speaking, 
how does that come in to be used mainstream so it is used appropriately, but yet people have access to it? And another thing I'd like to let's answer that. And also I'd like to talk about how we talk about it safely or how we even bring it up. There are so many people that I know they want to talk about it, but I'm actually afraid to talk about it for fear of how I'll be perceived in the community. How do we safely talk about it too? No, I think that's exactly right. Because as I mentioned, when I brought this up to people, immediately everybody had a story. No one volunteered that story to me. No so, one said, right. hey, I'm using psychedelics for this, or I used it for this situation right. or that situation. The because, old, my friend. Right. And I think that's the thing is everybody's <laughs> got a friend. So one of the things when you mention, I always think, and this is just public health thinking here in general, how do you change attitudes is you need champions. So someone- Advocates. Yeah, advocates. You need somebody who's really popular to say, hey, I was struggling with this. I did that. And now I'm doing great. And because that opens up the door. Now, of course, that also leads to floodgates and everybody thinks they're going to do it. Did you see the thing with Aaron Rodgers? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Now everybody wants to do I ask. That he's like, here are my stats the seasons before. Everyone thought I was so great. Yeah. And here are the seasons after. And he went Why? on what And he's he old. After he started using ayahuasca. And he had his teammates use it too. They got on such the same page. The results were like off the charts had, when you look at the numbers. I mean, I'm not a professional athlete, but I had the same experience with my injury. I mean, oh my God, that's right. Yes. I mean, it was, it sure. was huge is that I constantly put myself down and my progress from my injury was never, ever good enough for almost 30 years. Just remind people what you're And then about. I did plant medicine, remind people. that The fact that when you were quadriplegic after the car accident, and then even though you recovered to the point that you could walk, right. your gait isn't what it was. No, and Your I fast would, twitch muscle fibers don't work the right. same. And it's just- I can't run fast. I can't jump. I, there are many, many things I can't do. I mean, I'm on the greenway riding my bike and 80 year olds are passing me no ability to do anything fast. And that has like a, like a wormhole gotten into your psyche. Big time. And I have put myself down. I have used humor to put myself down or talked about trading in my body and trading in my legs. But can I take it one step further? You can. We're married and I love you unconditionally, but there's areas where I try to love you and you can't accept it. True. Because I'm loving your physical attributes and you have such a negative association, it's right. literally hitting a wall. Very true. So then I did plant medicine and without going too deep into it again, but I found a really, really deep love for myself. And a week later, after the integration, you were talking about how important the integration is. A week later, I run all the time and my runs are so slow and my legs are cinder blocks usually. And they're very uncoordinated and I fall, I trip all the time. I was running, I don't even remember what I was doing. I was down to definitely eight minute miles for multiple miles, three to five miles and not slowing down at all. I was very coordinated. I wasn't tripping anymore. I wasn't falling. It changed my whole perspective on myself. And is on the heels of not just doing the medicine, but then because you don't cry and mm -hmm. you cried for, and this is just you. Hours. Hours, hours straight, like uncontrollable sobbing. Because I felt so bad for how I treated myself and how I did negative self-talk. And yeah, again, I'm not a professional athlete, but I had much of the same experience of how it opened up different avenues in my body and my brain and everything. It was very powerful. Yeah, it's great. Great story. And mm -hmm. I really thank you for sharing that. And amazing right? Because we call these case studies, but that's a case study that says this was really successful. Right. I mean, it really was. And you mentioned Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I was watching SportsCenter a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about ayahuasca on SportsCenter. They actually made <laughs> a joke about it. Good. They were like, maybe he should be doing this after every, like, that was actually like a joke <laughs> to me. It was interesting. Like here we are talking about a psychedelic DMT that a few years ago, a professional athlete couldn't have said, I take right. a psychedelic well, on the off season. It's still illegal right. in the United oh, States. Oh, it is. It is. But, but he's talking about it. That's the crazy part. Mm -hmm. He's he's talking about mm -hmm. it. And that not only is he talking about it and people didn't just shun him and be like, hey, this druggie over here, they're like making jokes about it and saying, hey, look, it's actually right. helped his performance. So those are the kind of things that change attitudes and change mm -hmm. people's viewpoints on things because it's all of a sudden, well, this guy, and he's a hero of people on both sides of the aisle. Absolutely. To put it that way. And so he might change minds just in mm -hmm. the fact that someone who 
respected him as a player and the way he ran and had his life or whatever. It's like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't this demon drug that I would expect it to be right. or something uh-huh. like that. I just hope, and to me, this is the magic seed for me for this whole topic is I just hope that when it becomes a little bit more okay to talk about, when it becomes something that we start seeing there is value and these case studies start surfacing, that we don't do what we did with ephedra. We don't do what we did with soy. Remember when soy became the alternative to meat and then we were eating soy like coming out of your ears. And it's like, no, look at the cultures that use it. They don't use that much of it because it has other medicinal factors besides the protein. Our culture, we just run with it and we don't do it properly. With no thinking. We just do it and we abuse it. The research is always behind. The regulations are always behind. So that's what happens. It gets ahead of all that. And then before you can sort of say, oh, this is useful, it's already, right? right let's go ahead. So just talking about studies, just figured people probably want to hear a couple studies. So I did a lot of research into the studies because I'm a big nerd and I love research is my thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went to PubMed, which is a way that researchers look up studies that have been done. And I found a lot of little tiny studies, but then I found one, it was called a meta-analysis. Not sure if you're familiar with meta-analysis. Explain but, it, please. Yeah, sure. No problem. So basically... A lot of times when you're first studying something, maybe not just when you're first studying something, you have a lot of studies and they're different sizes, small sample sizes. Sometimes you have different endpoints, but they're similar enough that if you combine the statistics from the different studies, you make a more powerful study. So I know that sounds weird because they all weren't designed the same way. They're not, those studies were not done by the same authors same schools, whatever it might be, research institutions. But sort of post hoc, you can take all this data, all the statistics, and you can put them together and say, hey, we're finding these larger effects now that we're putting a larger sample size. Because a lot of what I do is related to something called power. And power is being able to see the difference between two things that you're testing. And so when you have a larger sample size, you have an opportunity to have a larger power, which means you can see smaller effect sizes. So differences are smaller. So what they did is these authors, they reviewed 34 studies in a meta-analysis. And all 34 studies, and they used the terms ayahuasca, ibogaine, ketamine, lysergic acid, well, LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin. And com- came up with conditions that were treated by these substances ranging from depression to autism. So again, big array Fantastic. of different... yeah. And the largest volume of the research that they looked at was actually in substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. So helping individuals with substance use disorders. And what they actually found was that most of these studies demonstrated significant associations with improvement in the conditions investigated. So significant. But the problem is, again, small sample sizes. And that's the issue they basically came back to. And they said, hey, we can't make any conclusions here because it's small sample sizes, it's inconsistent measures, and poor study design. These are bad researchers. That's not what they mean. They mean because research is so limited, you're basically looking at a volunteer group. You're looking at, so mm-hmm. you can't really do, I mean, I always, you always have volunteers, that's what I mean, but you're looking at who are the people that are going to volunteer specifically for this type of study. It becomes, you become very restricted in the type of study you can actually form and run. So I think that's one of the things. And so basically their big takeaway from this and their big recommendation was, hey, this is great that we found all this, but we need to start studying this. I mean, this needs to be large scale studies with placebo controlled trials. And that's where we think we'll start seeing these effect sizes that I think we'll start convincing folks that this works. Again, we follow the data. If it doesn't work, then let's know that too. But from what I've seen, the large amount of data has been collected from these trials is that they're very effective. And just want to mention two more things quickly is that I mentioned that Johns Hopkins trial earlier. Mm -hmm. I think that was a really interesting one because it's 2022. So these results just came out and basically they announced that substantial antidepressant effects of psilocybin-assisted therapy, given with supportive psychotherapy. Again, that's always Mm -hmm. what you're going to see in all these things. You're always working with psychologists or psychiatrists on supportive psychotherapy. Integration. And they found, they've only just started this, but up to a year out, they're studying these folks. And they found that almost after a year, that 58% reported continued effects from a single dose. So you can tell that obviously at single dose, there's Mm -hmm. there's very early data. But the point is being is that they're already seeing really dramatic effects. And a year later, think about that. I mean, we're talking about depression is the type of thing that is recurring. It's debilitating, chronic, exactly. And so if there's something that someone can take that can actually provide them some relief, 
some potential long-term relief. Absolutely. Yeah. We already have so many medicines to treat depression, right? But why would we not want something that's highly effective, maybe short-term to actually take it short-term, adjusting it short-term rather than having to be on something long? So there's so many potential benefits of looking at this. Are these medicines treating depression or are they where plant medicine or not anything natural assists with personal growth and healing? Are the depression medications, are they healing or are they masking? That's a great question. Yeah. And I think it's implied almost in what you're saying. What I hear is what I think too, <laughs> is that a lot of times when you mention an SSRI, you're just changing the brain chemicals, right? And then artificially in the brain, where this seems to be less about changing the chemicals on like a daily basis, but you do basically a shift in your brain chemistry, your thinking, all those kind of things. So I think you're saying it's something that can have a long lasting effect where when you're using Western meds, you're reliant on this to continue to do this artificially. Yeah. It's like a blood pressure medication. Anything you have to take every day. An antidepressant, you have to take that every day. Those are the kind of things when you stop taking it, the effects immediately wear off. Right. And there's a big difference here, right? If you take it one, two times, three times, and then under a controlled circumstances, and then a year later, two years later, you're not feeling those same symptoms. Right. I mean, again, safety is a big thing. From what we've seen, things like psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, in small controlled doses, we see very little adverse events. It's usually related to people having bad trips, so they have to go get some other medicine to calm them down. But we're not talking about people who generally having heart attacks or any kind right. of physical. Yeah. Right. Okay, let me ask you something. Are there any places that have legalized these psychedelics? So yeah, actually, just recently, Australia, I think within the last year, legalized psychedelics for mental health. You have to be approved Mm -hmm. by the Australian government, but approved psychiatrists can prescribe MDMA for PTSD treatment and magic mushrooms or psilocybin Mm -hmm. for certain types of depression. So already we're going to be starting to see large scale use of this and more studies happening there uh, as the acceptance occurs. And so this is how I think it will grow and continue to people to understand what the potential benefits are. Anything for anxiety? Yeah, that's in there too. I just tell real quick, just I have a list of things that they've studied. Anxiety, depression, substance use disorders, PTSD, tobacco dependence, end of life issues. So something we didn't get into today, mm-hmm. but a lot of folks with terminal cancer yes. have been experimenting with using different types of hallucinogens yes. and, and psychedelics. And a lot of people have reported coming to terms and peace with their own death because it allows your perspective to shift. Right. Right. And there's where you're talking about. That's huge. Yeah. If you think about it, it's amazing to think that even in a case like that, where maybe you could identify, oh, this is but it's really about the end of your life. You should be depressed and anxious in that case, right? But this takes that away. And so Mm -hmm. it just shows that that effect is really universal. How we frame our life, how we frame our situations determine the state of mind that we're in about those situations. And it's getting to that new age kind of more like mindfulness where if you can allow your mind to expand, what suddenly was so big and threatening becomes small and manageable and Mm -hmm. something that you can process for something that literally it's bigger than you. And that changes your brain chemistry. Yes, That changes your outlook on life. And that's where I feel it's really going. It's really getting to that expanded state of consciousness, which allows us to change the meaning of things in our life. So let's get a Western magic seed out of this episode and let's get an Eastern magic seed. All right, Dr. Shall we? Yeah. So from my research for the show and also my interest in this, the magic seed here uh, really relates to the fact that more research needs to be done. From the Western medicine, we need to know, again, the biological mechanisms are really important, how it helps people and for groups it helps. You know, you mentioned earlier, does it help individuals with severe mental illness? So mm-hmm. I think those are the kind of things that I think what I came with is that we know this works. We just have to now do it in a way that's going to allow for acceptance in society right. so this can become a medicine. And that's why you guys keep talking about being a medicine. So for me, I think that's the magic seed. It's changing this conversation from hallucinogens and psychedelics to a medicine. I mean, Absolutely. if you think about it, medicinal marijuana, right? That's a term, right? That took a long time to that, yes, for it that did. term to come mm-hmm. to. And still is. Still is, <laughs> right. And so I think that's from where my magic seed is we've got to sort of show folks the benefits of it so that it's not these horrible hallucinogens and psychedelics. They're medicine. I mean, you know, magic mushrooms sound really fun. Now that's like, oh, magic mushrooms. There's a couple of headlines. Can I just real quickly tell you? Fox News, July 8th. So it was yesterday. Oh, the, the headline 2023 was. A psychedelic city. 
That's the big headline, okay? All <laughs> capital letters. Psychedelic City, colon, magic mushrooms grow in therapy use, but some at-home users may face psychedelic trauma. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. But I mean, so, it's fair. That's, it's fair. Well, and, and if you actually read the article, it's about some <clears throat> dude who decided he was going to take shrooms to try to help himself. And what do you think happened? He, he jumped a, out a window, maybe. You know, like. Yeah, he had a really bad trip and some really <laughs> bad things happened to him. And they found a couple other people that happened to so I think I'm just saying that to say that the magic seed for me is the fact that like that kind of stuff's going to obscure the medicinal parts of, of course. this. And so we have to Always do a does. good job from the Western side of showing the benefits because even though you all may know this from the Eastern side for the longest time, it's not going to get accepted mm-hmm. until Western medicine accepts it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I love the magic seed and I don't even think there's really a difference. Maybe the way that I see it from a natural sense is different than a Western medical sense, but it's the same thing. Everything in life, every situation is potentially medicinal, right? Hardships, everything we're going through, a song that comes on and it elicits an emotion. Everything we process has the potential to be a medicine. And if we engage in it in a controlled manner and with a kind of a, a sacred intention. And balance. Right. We learn how to use it. And that's really what this is all about. That Anything in life can be a toxic, could be a poison, it could be neutral, or it could be medicinal. And, and potential for personal And growth. to know how to use it, it's just like, if we're going to go down this road, which I'm excited about personally mm-hmm. and professionally, it's still, I'm with Dr. Harmon here, if we can do this in a controlled way that maintains some integrity and some foundational support that doesn't let it get out of control, this could be such an important advancement in medicine. Absolutely. That's my magic seed is the same. Like learn how to use this, be curious to it and learn how to use it appropriately. And there's, this stuff has been used a lot of it for, like you said, thousands of years even. Mm. So there's precedent before of how to use this properly and anecdotes with it. I don't want to ruin your magic seed because I think it's great. Love what you just said, but I just, I had an anecdote here that I forgot to say, and I just kind of felt like it fit in perfectly here is one of the things that I was doing research and found is that many animals, including insects and mammals, use hallucinogenic plants and fungi themselves. They know that they contain those substances and they still use them. So I just think, for instance, I read about the Siberian reindeer who drink the urine of animals that have eaten the Amanata muscaria mushroom, well known to the local shamans, be excreted as an active compound in the urine. And they purposely do that. So I just thought that was an interesting thing to say is that so the quest for something else is not just human, right? It's like to connect with something. I mean, we're finding animals do these kind of things. So I'm sorry, there's just a little Maybe bit of a... it's their hallucination that started reindeer flying and carrying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Anything you want to add? Laura? No, there is nothing. I think I'm right on the same page. And if people are going to seek out these medicines, just use a guide. Know who your person is and use a guide, whether it's in the medical field or whether it's outside in the Peruvian jungle. Know who your guide is and make sure you trust them and go for it, but use it in a balanced way. Everything is about balance. Excellent. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Gary Harmon, for having me on today. Uh This was really fun. Yeah. You gave us some credibility. This is excellent. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, until next week. And actually, we have another guest to talk about this. We have a few, actually. And yeah. So we want to expand on this conversation definitely more because it's really been a hot topic, Mm -hmm. a lot of interest to people. So until next week, nothing but love.